0: to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. Welcome to our series, It's Not Just Politics. Today, Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Jill Reesey, his content and ministry coordinator, are going to discuss why human institutions, communities, and societies do well. With politics, we often get very focused on thinking that the problem is with the institution. More recently, that has led to a lot of division in this country, so we're going to take a closer look at the good of institutions. If you have any further questions or feedback, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening.
1: Hello, Nick. And hello, everyone. Um, Today, in this episode, which is part of the It's Not Just Politics series, we're going to be talking about why human institutions, communities, and societies do well. Um, Nick, to start out, how must how must we first approach institutions as a Christian?
2: So I think it's important for us to recognize that human beings um, don't do very well by themselves. Um, the classic and the Western canon on that, I think, is um, Robinson Crusoe, which demonstrates the difference between just one very industrious person and having just one more, that two people do more than twice as much. Because they can do things one person simply can't do. And so people are are created to be communal by nature. Um, God, um, The first thing God said that wasn't okay about creation was that the man was alone. And the first thing that God did after he created everything with humans and made them was he created two institutions. That is, he instituted human beings as the vice regents and guardians over creation to take dominion and subdue it and to continue his work of creation. So he gave them authority and made creation additionally hierarchical immediately. And that was not because of the fall or because of sin or because of anything bad. God did it as part of his good creative activity, right? And then the second is that he created the institution of the family, which is God's first human institution in which he um, seeks to bless us by giving us a way of fulfilling the commission he gave us to fill the earth and subdue it, but also to be happy in doing so and to f- thrive and flourish as human beings. And it justifies his creation of creatures that take an extraordinarily long time to develop. That we, we're, we're the sort of creatures that without, an inst- without institutions, we would die. like We literally couldn't exist because we require long-term care unlike almost any other animal on the face of the earth. So human beings are bound to cooperation and we're bound to um, a certain kind of tribal structure of, communi- of of connection. You call it a clan structure, but like uh, s- s- communities, humans tend to function best in communities of about 150 to 200 people um, and then break down into subcommunities from there. And so the state is a very unnatural institution, but the family and the clan and the neighborhood are actually very human institutions. So um, I think it's important. So so the reason why I think this podcast is important is we need to understand the nature of institutions and how they function in human life before we even have a prayer of understanding what the state is, how it can function best, how it can be healthy. And the reason why I think it's important to get back to first principles is that if you don't get back to first principles, then you will end up uh, at the mercy of talking heads. That whoever sounds the most persuasive, the way the conversation is framed at the moment in the TV conversations that are being had or or whatever is being flashed on social media or put on the yard sign, um, that has ascendancy. And that is deadly. it um it is hi- a highly corrupted form of conversation. Um, it doesn't focus on the real issues. It keeps people from understanding the the deeper structure of things, and it it leads to decline rather than to building. And just remember, there's a fundamental principle about nature. It's so much faster to poison and destroy things than to create health and build things up. And so as Christians being being called to be edifiers and builders and people who take dominion in good ways to to produce flourishing for all people under God's good governance— like, we're supposed to understand this. And there's plenty of evidence in the Bible and teaching the Bible for us to understand it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like what you're saying is that when we forget the structures that we need and that we've been created for and why we need them, then it's easy to be persuaded by these solutions that other people offer. It seems to meet something we yeah. need, but we don't remember what we were created for.
2: First. Yeah. Unknowingly, we work against our nature and against our condition as human beings And no matter how good your technique is or technology, when you work against your nature and your condition, Mm -hmm. you fail Mm -hmm. and you create hardship, decline, pain, injustice, et cetera. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So you started out by talking about the divine institutions of the family and the church, but how then do we view government in light of what the institutions God has created or um, what we were created for and where does that fit into God's plan for us as humans. How do we think about government then as an institution?
2: Yeah, specifically in relationship to government, I think we need to recognize that government is is assumed in a way in creation, but it is created um, by necessity after the fall, especially executive government, that is kings or governors or princes or whatever, people who have the right to rule over you. Um, is something that God explicitly rejects in the creation of the Jewish people. And then it's something that when he accepts it, it comes with one of the sternest and most terrible warnings in the whole Bible. Um, so, and I think people don't really recognize this very well. So in, the, in creation, God says to take dominion over the earth, to fill it and to multiply. And God understands and recognizes this is going to create a certain amount of human organization That human organization is going to have hierarchy and authority Mm -hmm. in it. And that is by definition governance. And so governments or governance uh, with small g is necessary for humans to obey God in the creation mandate. However, in um, first Samuel, when, when the people get tired of having Samuel as their leader, they don't want to just be told what is right and do it. They want somebody to do it for them or to lead them in mm. doing it. So they say, we don't want a prophet telling us what to do. We want a king to go to war on our behalf and to lead us out into war. We want, we want that, like everybody else has that. Why can't we have that? And the reason they didn't have that is because God had given them a law. And see, if the people had faith and developed a virtue, they didn't need a governor or a king. Mm. They could just do what was right. And at the in the moments where this, the nation had to come together to do something that on, they could only do together, like fight a battle, the prophet would call them together and they would fight their battle, right? And the assumption was that God would be with them and they wouldn't need chariots and horses and armies and so on. And so Israel was supposed to be individually, personally armed and demilitarized. And after um, Saul becomes king and militarizes part of the people of Israel, you get a lot more wars and a lot more battle and he can start fights and it's it's not great. But also the, the main... Um, thing that Samuel says is, listen. The minute you have a government, the government takes. It doesn't just give. It takes, and it takes a lot more than it gives, and it and it creates injustices of all kinds. And The, the king will take, and like if you read that section for Samuel, it's and he, take, and he will 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 take. Secondly, in the Torah itself, when it anticipates that they will ask for a king, he said someday you will ask for a king, and here if you do, which you shouldn't, the king has to do these things, and it's like not marry many women not get lots of horses and chariots and stuff like that to build up his military. And he's supposed to hand copy a copy of the Bible himself, therefore be literate as well. Mm -hmm. And he's to carry it with him everywhere he goes. And he's to read from it every day of his life. Right. Because he, God recognizes that many wives, that is to give yourself over to sensuality and many horses and chariots, giving yourself over to self aggrandizement and power are natural perverse incentives in four people with power and are corrupting by nature. And it's easy to forget God and forget his word and forget what he says. And to put that aside and put that behind you. And so he has to read from it every day of his life. And of course the greatest King of Israel, Solomon didn't do those things. And it literally, I mean, it literally says at one point when it talks about Solomon's corruption, that he married many women and he sent to Egypt to get many horses. He literally did the opposite. And that's bound to happen. And then in the history of Israel, both in its centralized monarchy and divided monarchy, there's way more bad kings than good ones. And the good ones aren't that great, right? There's David who's pretty darn good. And that's about it. Everybody else like isn't Mm -hmm. good. There's a few good kings in that they're better than most and they trust the Lord in certain ways, but political corruption is just rampant. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And it is only the prophets who keep bringing revival, which in some ways hold the position of the church today disenfranchised from the government and yet speaking the word of God into the institutions of culture and their structures.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a really, that's really helpful. Um, yeah. So
2: I, the re, one of the reasons I say that Jill is because a lot of people don't think any of that matters today. They right. don't think yeah. any of those teach principles about how we understand governance, government, public policy, mm-hmm. who to vote for, any of that stuff. And that, they do because those that, are universal human principles.
1: Mm-hmm. And that was going to be my next question is how then. So, I mean, that was God's chosen nation in the old Testament. Right. And um, so how does that then tr- um, move into the new Testament with Jesus? Because those Kings that failed, even though some of them were good, like David, mm-hmm. for the most part, those were pointing to, to the greater King Jesus. And one thing I've actually right. seen in this election and the responses to it is um, some Christians saying like on social media, etc., that like, well, Jesus is King. It's all going to be okay. And yeah, that's true. But what do we see with yeah. like the engagement of human institutions with, with Jesus yeah. and in the new Testament?
2: Yeah. I mean, it is true that Jesus is King and everything's going to be okay. Eschatologically in right. the moment of glorification, but you know, Russian Orthodox Christians were saying that when Stalin came to power and like murdered f- up to 50 million people. Right? So like that's that's true. Like theologically that's true. The grave cannot keep you forever and even if you're murdered by your government you will rise in the end and mm-hmm. be one of God's martyrs and you will be glorified and rewarded and be with Christ forever and in the end it will be okay. Right. That's true. Yeah.
1: And I don't know. But that
2: doesn't mean it's not stupid. Right. To like (laughs) not understand what's going to happen if you do certain things.
1: And I do think that's some of how it's being used right now. I don't know the full motivation of everyone saying that, but it's a simplistic like way to not look at the real issues that are happening now. And so, and I don't think Jesus engaged in politics or human institutions in that way. So I'm wondering how that develops in the New Testament.
2: Yeah. yeah. So a couple of things about this, because this is also really important because people will say what you said before. Yeah, but that's the Old Testament. And that was the people have got our country and all that. Right. There's a couple of things to recognize. There is a certain kind of secularistic and sometimes feministic um, and sometimes in America, Afrocentric bigotry surrounding like, well, if we just get the right people in power, it'll be better. Right. So the secular bigotry is, well, religion destroys everything. And these were like all these religious kings. If you get all the religion out of there and people are just science based. Then things will be better. Or if a woman was in charge, it would have been better. Or if, you know, or if the right race of people, or if somebody from an oppressed class got to rule. Well, th- here's the thing: if you read the Old Testament carefully, all of those things happen.
1: Oh, hmm. yes, that is true.
2: There are people of different ethnicities that are <laughs> yeah. that are the surrounding kings. There are mis- mixed ethnicity kings. There is a point where two women are running the nation. Both are the among the worst leaders in the history of Israel. Things don't get more maternal when those ladies take over, they get more ruthless. Right? And so, here's what you're supposed to take away from it. Those Israelites had every advantage. They had every advantage. They had a moral law. They had God's destiny around them. God had given them a good land with natural resources. They had an expanding population. They were in a good... Era for trading routes and all of that. They, I mean, God was blessing them. They had prophets to tell them what to do when they didn't know what to do. I mean, they, like, they had everything God could give them to succeed and they failed miserably. And -hmm. it's not because the Jews are worse than most, it's that the Jews are typical human beings. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at that, what we should see is not like, well, you know, it's the theocracy and blah, blah, blah. No. Human beings with every advantage did that. That's what we got. That's what you can expect from human beings. So think about that. Think about what kind of institutions you want to create governmentally knowing that. And especially right now, knowing that in the last hundred years, the most murderous and unjust set of institutions in the entire world have been governments. Murder by government was mm-hmm. one of the leading causes of mm-hmm. death in the last century.
1: Yeah, And, the and point- I think it might
2: be the leading non-natural cause of death.
1: The point in that, too, is not that each type of person or each ruler or whatever was, um, like, that was the core issue. It was actually that we were are humans and they weren't trusting
2: in God. Right. And so, um, Right. It, right. Yeah. People think they would have been better than David. And you wouldn't have. Like, David was the man after God's own heart. Like, he was 10 times better than you and me. Like and I don't mean that in like a hagiographic way, like oh he's a saint, he's Saint David. No, I mean like God picked him out of the fields because He had a heart for him like no other. Like you think mm-hmm. you think you have a heart for God? Like no, like do you really think that's you? But he was king, and so he took some more wives, and he cut some corners, and he got in fights, and like he and all of these things. It's very difficult to stay godly in those kinds of contexts. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to corrupt in little ways. It's very easy to just overlook things and not take care of stuff like parenting his son Absalom, for example. Like who knew that was going to blow up like that? He didn't, right? But it put him in all kinds of strange and awkward situations where it was very different to be godly. So, all right. So you get all that in the Old Testament. We should take from that, that this is what you can understand, expect from certain kinds of human institutions and hierarchies. And this is what you can expect from the heart of man. Now you come to the New Testament and you have Jesus, right? How does Jesus interact with governmental institutions? And the answer is, to a certain extent, as little as possible. Right? And yet very he little is in the mystery of Jesus. The King. <laughs> right? Yeah, right? yeah, very little in the mystery of Jesus, right? Um, now, here's the problem. people who are in power want to make everything under their jurisdiction. because what happens is people don't like being told what to do, and so they move their interests away from, what's being controlled into things that aren't controlled so they can be free. And so the people in power to be like, well, that's under our control too. And then you move, they move what they want to do again. And then the people, well, that's under our control too. So what happens naturally when, um, when poli- in politics is it moves to empire it moves from, from Republic to empire. Right? So because people keep moving away from control, right? So, What that means is areas that shouldn't be political get politicized. And so then the Christian or the Christ is forced to speak into things that some people think are political, but that he doesn't think are political. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So, for example, all the different factions of the time came to Jesus and said, hey, aren't we right on this? Because what political leaders need to succeed is moral authority. And recognizing that Jesus had moral authority, they came to him to see if they could get an endorsement right? Well, Jesus, aren't we right about this? And Jesus, Jesus didn't say, look, I'm not going to be political. I don't want to get involved. Jesus answered their questions. Now, a couple times he was evasive because he didn't believe that the question was in good faith and it was designed to trap him. But when they asked him a question, just like, are we right about this? He gave them a straight answer. So for example, um, in Israel at the time, there, were, there was a political struggle, religiously speaking, between two different rabbi guilds, right? Hillel and Shimei. And they had differing views on divorce. One believed that you could only divorce a woman for unfaithfulness, that is adultery. The other believed that anything that displeased a man that he considered indecent, he could divorce his wife for, even if it was burnt dinner. Literally. I mean, that's literally in the rabbinical writings. And um, so they asked Jesus, right? Jesus in Exodus, when it says a husband can divorce his wife, for, when he, if he discovers something indecent, what does that mean? Is it his subjective idea of what's indecent or is it objectively adultery and jesus is like it's adultery you nincompoops like no what it means is that if a man marries a woman he thought she was a virgin finds out she wasn't because she's pregnant or something he has the right to divorce her and if he does he has to legally do it with a certificate of divorce so that she can remarry if there isn't um martial punishment right so he he gives a straight answer so when the sadducees and the pharisees come to him and say hey is there eternal life or isn't there he doesn't say, "Well, I can't get involved in your little political discussion because I know this has to do with like how power flows through the synagogues versus the temple and blah 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 blah." He goes, "No, listen, eternal life's a thing, right?" which Which meant the Pharisees got to say, "We're right, ha ha," right? But like you know, a couple chapters later, he's like, "The Pharisees do not do what the Pharisees do and don't follow them because they're hypocrites and they, you know." And he talks about all, everything that's wrong with with the Pharisees, right? And he doesn't really say what's right about the Pharisees. That's not that's not Mm -hmm. the teachings we receive, Um, because he's attacking their partisanship, their claim to own and control the minds and hearts of people. Mm -hmm. Also, one of the things you also see is is in cancel culture, right? There's this thing like, well, you should like I literally got stuff in my Facebook feed when it looked like Trump was going to win, where like progressives are like, listen, if you vote for Trump, tell me so I can get rid of you off of my friend feed. Right?
1: It was terrible.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, just the
1: things people are saying are terrible. Yeah, yeah.
2: And I don't think you're going to get that. Republicans will will pitch a fit in a different way, right? They'll say that they'll say that they weren't treated fairly, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So liberals say that if they lose, they say everybody who was against them is a bigot and a terrible person, and they don't want anything to do with them anymore. Republicans tend to say we got bullied and beat up and treated unfairly. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. we would have won, right? That's kind of the way it goes right now. So, um. Jesus, so so part of that progressive fallacy is like we're just going to cut out the people who disagree with us. Like screw them. Like I don't even want you in my thing. Well, Jesus literally had the two worst sex sects. I'm saying that with a T S E C T S. It's
1: helpful in his apostles. <laughs> to clarify,
2: mm-hmm. right, right. He right in his apostles he had mm-hmm. a tax collector mm-hmm. who was like th- like the worst kind of person working with the oppressed class Mm -hmm. right oppressing class i mean and then he had a zealot the guy who wanted to kill everybody i Mm -hmm. mean that's that would be literally like taking the most extreme black lives matter like marxist antifa person and putting them in the same bible study with like somebody from a i don't know like Deep in Washington, big money, like government think tank controls a bunch of stuff behind the scenes. Person,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and and Jesus is like, hey, we're all going to be together for three years. We're going to sleep in the same room. We're going to eat the same food. We're going to like
1: we're doing the same work together. Yeah, Yep. 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 we're on the same yep. team. Yep. yep, yeah,
2: yeah. And you're going to have to adjust what you thought about taxation or what you thought about revolution through me. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that's really important to understand is. Everybody who interacted with Jesus, sometimes he told them they were right about something. Sometimes he told them they were wrong about something. But he told them all that they were condemned before God in their righteousness. They were not righteous. And every group at some point looked at Jesus in complete bewilderment at what he said, because his teachings were not worldly. They were otherworldly. Mm -hmm. And when it comes right down to it, um, the factions of this earth are rooted in power, and they are worldly in their focus. And Jesus is not. And Jesus and the apostles tended to turn their backs on coercion, not judgment. In the end, if you chose to do what was wrong to the point of destruction, you would be judged. You would ultimately, you would ultimately receive what was due to you for what you chose. But at no point... Did Jesus or his apostles seek to take away a person's right to choose to be virtuous or unvirtuous, full of faith or faithless? Does that make sense? Not, not to say that he didn't believe that people should be restrained in overt acts of evil, but, but Jesus was not the sort of person who's was like, you shouldn't let somebody be a progressive or a conservative or a whatever. He would be like, no, everybody has to act according to conscience and we will argue the truth and we will display love. And if somebody sacrifices and sheds blood, it's going to be us Mm. to do it. Because because if you shed somebody else's blood, you show that you believe in power. If you allow somebody to shed your own blood, you believe in the truth of your convictions.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in what you've been saying, what's really important is the understanding of the kingdom of God and how it's, Um, This is a common way to phrase this, but it's here. It's like already here, but also not yet here. And when we get captured into either a physical kingdom, um, like even in the Old Testament, thinking that like, I mean, that was a physical kingdom in a sense here, but also there was prophecies about God's coming judgment and victory and glory. um, Because, I mean, he had a first coming in Christ and also a second coming. And so we're still in that state where we're waiting for the... Fullness of the kingdom. And right. so it's not going to come on this earth through any government or institution or any human effort. Um, and I think right now it's displayed through the truth that um, God brought. And there was, there was flourishing with that truth and there was healing and there was manifestation of the kingdom being here in Christ, mm-hmm. but it's also not fully yet here. But that means we engage. Yeah. We engage as if it's here, but we also know that it's not fully here.
2: Yeah, yeah, and the, though the apostles I think taught everywhere that we should recognize and revel in our disenfranchisement, in our rejection by mm-hmm. the worldly kings and peoples, mm-hmm. right? They expect they expected Christians to be not just a minority, but a persecuted minority, basically everywhere they lived, right? But they also didn't tell Christians to revel in that or to shrug their shoulders at the world around them, mm-hmm. right? When God sent His people to Babylon, which was a a perfectly wicked kingdom in the exile, he commanded them to live for the good and welfare of the city, right? To live for the good and flourishing of all people in Babylon. Mm -hmm. However, he did not say that they should dilute in any way their identity as Jews. In fact, he said they should not dilute their identity as Jews and they should increase in number. They should get married. They should marry other Jews. They should have a Jewish community. They should have an identity as God's people. They should do all the Jewish things. But as Jews, they should live for the whole city of Babylon, the pagan city for which they live because their welfare is tied together similarly the christian though we recognize that we are both exiles and ambassadors right we're exiles right that our citizenship is not doesn't function the way we wish it could and we can't make nice here we really are not from here so to speak our mm-hmm. citizenship is in heaven but we we're also sent by heaven to be ambassadors to speak the truth in this city right but then also it's the case that um we're supposed to live for the good and welfare of the whole city and try to be as big a participant in society as we can be, right? Mm-hmm. And those things all kind of work together and you have to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, figure out what that means mm-hmm. for you. And, and that takes prudence in decision making. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't think you should hate other people who are trying to sort that out. And I think in, the, you know, in our present context, you can sort that out in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. depending on a bunch of assumptions that are easy to dis- disagree about.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Including, I think, feeling like the Democratic candidates are the best choice or the Republican ones. Mm -hmm. Though I have a preference for sure. Um, I don't look at the person who makes the other decision in good conscience and say, you're a bad person. I might think they're naive. I might think they're uninformed. I might think that their thinking isn't accurate or correct. Right? But I don't think they're not a believer or a bad person or anything like that. Mm Right? Right.
1: Yeah. And, and those things like you were talking before about power and like how we want to take power, but with that, we want to take judgment. Um, and we want to judge for ourselves what is right or wrong or good or bad. And so, um, when we look at the King, Jesus, he is, he is the King and he has all authority, but he's humble and he's a servant and, um, he speaks truth. And that like, those are the things that are powerful about him. Um,
2: yeah. So, and judgment yeah. is by definition an act of power.
1: Right. Yeah. So if you're going to do Jesus it, you better, <laughs> you better have the, the
2: right to do it. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus is like, you, be, you need to be real careful about judging people. Because if you don't do it right, it can lead to your damnation. So, mm-hmm. right, if, if you don't use the exact same measure on yourself that you use for other people... It could lead to your damnation. So be real careful. So, and that, that's why those passages are not talking about discernment and telling other people what's right or wrong. If I tell somebody, listen, you can't, you can't commit adultery. You can't walk out on your wife. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to hold a gun to their head and make them not do it. But I can tell them morally, they can't follow the Lord and believe in him and obey him and do that. That's, I'm not coercing him. I'm not making him stop. I'm not, I'm not taking yeah. power and I'm not saying he's going to hell. I'm just saying that doesn't accord with the truth. What you're doing is not moral. It's not good. It's not God's will. And that's a fact. And they can say, well, you're trying to like manipulate me or you're trying to force me. Yeah, but I'm not. right? You can still walk away and do whatever you want. And you're like, yeah, but you're making me feel bad. Well, that's up to you. Maybe that's your conscience telling you you're wrong, right? So th- like i that that's the appeal I'm supposed to make. The only power I have is appealing with the truth to your conscience. And if you are uh, if you are a upright person in the sense of, being faith-filled and faithful, you listen to your conscience. So yes, the truth is coercing to the righteous, but um, to the unrighteous. And that's why the righteous use the truth to speak to others and respond to the truth when they're spoken to with it. That's why it says in the book of Proverbs that, that um, you rebuke a wise man, he'll love you. Because all he wants is his life to conform to the truth. Right. Mm -hmm. But if it's about power, then it's just a fight. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Getting back to institutions as a, as a topic a little bit um, more, you, you, we talked about principles that we can take from the old Testament and new Testament about Mm -hmm. institutions and the human condition. Um, Do you want to talk more about that? Otherwise I want to talk about what we do and how, how we tell if an institution is corrupt and what we do in that situation.
2: Yeah, I just want to bring it into the New Testament so people don't think this is okay. only an Old Testament idea, right? So you, you have the institution of the family and of human dominion and creation. Mm-hmm. There's also obviously the institution of God's people, the line of prophets and all of those things. Ultimately, the king of Israel is an institution instituted by God, even though it's a divine concession. There's a lot of institutions that are divine concessions. They only exist because we're under the curse and because of sin. And they're just better than the alternative. And government is one of those, right? Um, government order is better than anarchy. And so here it is, but it's not inherently good, right? So, but then in the New Testament, you see this, like Jesus institutes a church.
1: Mm-hmm. Like,
2: like he gives words of institution. He gives it um, an authority structure. He gives it apostles and leaders. He, he does all kinds of, there are, I mean, yes, the church is an organism, but it's, it's a body, but it's also an institution
1: mm-hmm. and it
2: can never be less than an institution as the local church and the body of Christ in the world right? He talks about it as the kingdom of God. That's an institution. It's a government, right? And then when you get to people like the apostle Paul, not only does he have a fairly well oiled machine of ministers moving around him that there is a hierarchy to, but when he talks about the structure of the church in relationship to what the apostles were taught by Christ, it has structure and authority and the capacity for discipline and rules about money and all kinds of things and charity that are institutional functions. And so I think it's important to recognize that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, mm-hmm. not only are, are um, institutions talked about, do we see examples of them? Are we given warnings about them? Do we see how humans interact with them? But we also see that the church is and contains institutions. And that there are two institutions that should be fundamental to every Christian's life, the family and the church. And then others that we must interact with as citizens, in this, as people in this world, mm-hmm. including government. <laughs>
1: Obviously. Yeah. And so all of those institutions, though, that God created are good. Um, any institution can become corrupt because we are
2: sinful people. Mm-hmm. Um, so all institutions are prone to corruption and have a propensity to corruption.
1: Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Not just that it can happen, but it is, you can assume it's happening.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, you need to be vigilant against it because it, yeah. it, probably is happening if you're not
2: right that's why we get from the reformers that statement reformed and always reforming because they wanted to reform the roman catholic church but then they were like but it's not like we're not going to be corrupt in 20 minutes so you have to have this idea because because, that's the opposite of the idea that of traditionalism that like what's been done is good just do more of it and they're like no sometimes you got to clean it out like sometimes the garage needs spring cleaning not just more Mm -hmm. stuff from yard sales right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So how did, so, okay. It doesn't seem like our institutions are good right now. So how did we, how did we get here? Like what, what leads to the corruption that we're experiencing? What are the symptoms of corruption of institutions such that we, like if we're in it and don't realize it, how can we tell? Um, Because I mean, we're all, we're in this place. So And we're all, it does seem like America collectively is like, how did this happen? (laughs) But, but it's happening. And how did, how did it happen?
2: Yeah. So there's, gosh, there's a lot to say about that. Mm -hmm. Um, When, when there isn't the presence of strong institutions, what happens is what happens in the biblical book of Judges, where it says a number of places that everybody does what is quote right in their own eyes and you get essentially anarchy, right? And what you find out is that in anarchy, you have a certain kind of liberty. You can do whatever you want, but everybody's a free rider on the system and nothing can be built, right? Every, and so therefore everything's breaking down and everybody's getting weaker than people are stealing from each other. And you're just getting less and, less and less and less and less and less. Everybody's a vampire and everybody else. And, and there's no incentive to be productive because everybody's just going to destroy it. Right. It's not until you get an institution where you get people who agree to work together to produce a certain good that you start to get something productive. And it can start with just a man and a woman deciding to create a home. That's an institution, right? And then you can have kids and like you're building something good. But to get bigger than that, you have to have a larger agreement. In Israel, that was tribes, right? And as you get along, it includes things like local governance and so on, right? Or the church or the synagogue in the Old Testament or different cultures have had different smaller institutions, right? So what you what you end up getting is two kinds of institutions. There's the voluntary institution where people just agree they're gonna do something together, right? And then there is the coercive institution, like the tribe that has a chief, and if you do something that's wrong, you can get punished for it, and everybody has to play by a certain set of rules and all that, right? Both of those can be good, right? The more power there is to organize, right, the more authority also the more perverse incentive incentive there is for corruption. Right? So voluntary associations are always the easiest to keep uncorrupted because at any point the other volunteers can just be like, no. Hmm. Right? That's one of the reasons why um, people who love the free market love the free market because it's a voluntary organization circling around exchange. Right? And exchange is voluntary. And at any point you just be like, I don't want to be part of this anymore. This This doesn't benefit me. It only benefits you now. And so I don't want in. I want out. Right. And so in that sense, economies and markets are themselves institutions of voluntary exchange, the coordination of which is prices. Does that make sense? And within yeah. those within that, people both compete and cooperate.
1: I want to say something. On the basis of that. That the way you're talking sounds like how people view marriage now. So I just want to clarify that <laughs> yeah. voluntary institutions are not the divine institutions that God has created and the ones we were talking about before, but it just, we've come to view a lot of um, necessary institutions as voluntary. And so, right. That is not right. Helpful.
2: Yeah. So that, yeah. So there are, there are uh, institutions of, of human obligation, of human moral obligation. And there are some that are cooperative towards some other good end, right. Of prosperity, let's say. So the market like there, there are moral obligations that you have in the market, but not to buy something, right? Unless you've agreed to by contract or something like that. Mm-hmm. But so, so even within the market, there are all kinds of obligations. But whether or not I cooperate with you over some particular thing is a choice we can both make. That's different than a covenantal institution mm-hmm. in which we're agreeing to a long-term interaction over time. But it's necessary, and of course, it is for men and women in families because men and women give different things in the families over time. They pay different costs. Um, huge costs are paid in, as, assuming that you're going to get something as time goes on. there's there, there's all kinds of reasons why marriage marriage can't function like a market, right? and does very poorly when people treat it that way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what you're pointing out is there are different kinds of institutions. And one of the things I think that is very confusing for people now in America is we're confused about what kind of institution each institution is. Mm-hmm. We don't think family is a covenantal institution. We don't think church is a covenantal institution. We behave as though government is a covenantal institution, right? We have no idea what kind of institution commerce is.
1: <laughs> I didn't even think of it ever as an institution until now.
2: So yeah. Like people think commerce is like we're supposed to enforce moral rules now and cancel people and like advocate for things politically and like instead of just exchange, like productive work with each other, right? Because, you know, the market should do that kind of work. Well, the market is very poorly ordered to do that kind of work, right? So, so as people are more confused about what constitutes these different institutions, what authorities they have, why they function that way and so on, we don't know what they're for. And so we don't know what they should be doing. And so we're just kind of making it up as we go along. Generally speaking, then what modern people do is they look at what they think needs to happen and then they try to accord the power necessary to do it to one institution or another, whichever one they trust the most, or whichever one is operating in that in that space at the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So there's a lot of Christians that have never thought whether or not the government should be engaging in charitable work. They just know that we have a big welfare state, and it does. So I guess that's what we should fund, right? Rather than to be like, well... I don't know if, I mean, mm. if you get power through votes and if you're able to give people money through programs, isn't there a really ugly incentive set there? You yeah. Know, and other reasons, obviously.
1: It reminds me of what we were talking about before in the warning to the Israelites in the Old Testament with a king that the, your, the control will be given over to the king. And I mm. think... um I think that we do that as humans. We also give the control over because we don't, again, in in charity, it is easier to support a government or whatever institution thinking they give to charity, thinking then I give to charity. So it also does, it does remove the responsibility because we're giving over control. Um, So it's, Mm. I think it's voluntary and it happens to us. And uh, when we don't realize it's happening.
2: Yeah, because um, there's a lot of people who be like, listen, I pay my taxes to the welfare state, they help people, I'm a good person. And they're like, wait a second, are they helping those people? Is it working? How is this going, right? And they're like, well, that's... See, like if you push that on them, they don't think that's their job, right? But any person who engages in charitable contribution, it is their job to know whether or not they're doing good rather than harm with what they give, right? But nobody would accept that because they just they give to the administration of the government and think, well, th- there ends my moral... Obligation. And one of the things that's also the case with government is everything runs together in governments. So it's very difficult to fix individual things. Like if you're like, okay, wait, we should fix the welfare state in these three ways. Well, how are you going to do that? Because if you vote for the Republican Party, they're going to radically change it. And if you vote for the Democrat Party, they're going to expand it. Like who's going to do these three fixes that you think should be done? Right? No one. So what do you do? Right now, you're stuck in this binary choice that's winner take all. Where you can not actually improve things based on your convictions and you don't have what the founders called um, multiple um, laboratories of experimentation, right? So like they believed that the states would all do different things and people would all do different things. And what was best would arise out of all these different practices. Well, if you do it all through the government and there's just one huge bureaucracy telling everybody how they have to do it, you don't have any laboratories of experimentation, hardly. Right. Mm-hmm. So because people so so part of the the argument and the vicious one that exists between Americans relative to governance is we don't even know what the government is for. We don't talk about it. We have no idea what it's for, what mm-hmm. it does well, what it doesn't do well, and we don't have the conversation on that level. And so then we just want to jump to who we should vote for, which ends up being a question of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, usually based on how they're portrayed in the media. Right? Which is a terrible way to make decisions because what you're doing now is you're, you're looking at a power-based decision in relationship to institutions that are struggling for wealth and power in how they are doing what they're doing. And it's just, I can hardly think of a system more prone and filled with corruption. Right. And it's not like, it's not like I think news people are bad or politicians are any worse than anybody else. If I was a politician, I'd be just like a politician. And if I was a newscaster or person, I'd probably be just like everybody in the news. That's not the issue. The issue is with institutions is, is this the sort of institution that would lead to human flourishing or not? Hmm. And in order to know that you have to understand something about institutions and a good bit about human nature and the human condition.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Because how, how then do we at this point um, engage in reforming what is corrupt and working for flourishing, um, which I think, I mean, that does involve us being part of it. Like we can't just say, well, this yeah. is this is terrible. I'm out. Um, whereas we're in it. <laughs> so so what do we do in it in this position that we're in?
2: Um, I, I think that you have to do a number of things. The, the, f- the first thing is, is that I think um, I think the Roman Catholic social theologians are right about the concept of subsidiarity, that we should do things at the most local possible level, because institutions function best out of shared values and shared trust, right? And so if you trust an organization as large as the federal government, it has to be blind. Because you, there's no way to know anything about what's going on, right? Now, in theory, you could have watchdog organizations like the press, but even even so, I mean, especially with the modern press with so few reporters now, I mean, there's because of nurse, newspaper circulations are so low now, the available capital to hire investigators in the news media is a, like an all-time low. And so because of that, you really, I mean, the news really isn't going out and investigating things like they used to, and it's harder to find things out than it used to be. in certain ways. So the idea that they can watch an ever growing federal government with an ever shrinking number of reporters, even if those reporters wanted to report everything well and they weren't in bed with these groups and so on is probably naive. What I can watch over is what's going on in my local church. I can look over like what's going on in my local school board or my local mayor race maybe even. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So in some ways looking at smaller institutions in more local situations and um presumably voluntary associations as well. So one of the things that's very sad about institutions in America is the um the intentional voluntary organizations are going away. They were they were gangbusters in the eighteen eighties through about the nineteen sixties or seventies.
1: Could you give some examples okay. of those?
2: Oh yeah. yeah. Klux Club, Shriners, oh, okay. <laughs> VFW, um GK Chesterton said when he came to America and this is in the maybe the 20s and 30s he said you'd walk around and people would be wearing like 30 buttons like you know what I'm talking about like the little mm-hmm. like metal button with a little pin on it that you'd pin on yourself and mm-hmm. it would like be some association you were part of like it like so i mean if you go to when i was a kid when we went to Erie Pennsylvania there were like 15 different cultural clubs there was the Italian American Cultural Club, and there was the Polish American Cultural Club, and there was a little cultural club. There was the um, the Beaver Lodge, and the, or I'm sorry, the Moose Lodge, and there was the Elks Club, and there was the, there were all the mm-hmm. people are like, what are the, the Masons, and they're like, what do these people even do? <laughs> and the answer is, is well, in many cases, it was a place for men to get together and be men in productive rather than destructive ways, right? which mm. we underestimate the need of. But then in addition to that they did a ton of fundraising and volunteering and stuff for and in, in their community as an institution. Right? Like my son Jude had numerous surgeries. I mean tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical care um from the Shriners when we were in Florida. Right? We got better care than the university hospitals and it mm. was literally 100% free. Wow. And it was a great hospital, the Shriners. Like we'll be forever grateful for that. And that's because a bunch of old men, mostly white, who drove those little buggies in parades, you know, like and wore those funny hats. (laughs) Like they did stuff. They built hospitals and raised money. And they, when they were, they cared about kids who are crippled. That's what they cared about. They're like, we're going to, we're going to create a society where kids born with birth defects that cripple them. Kids with crutches, we're going to help them walk. And that's going to be our thing. And it is, right? Mm-hmm. And, and my family was a huge beneficiary of that. But that was true all across America, everywhere. Yeah.
1: Well, and, I, that's, and that's, for yeah. the most
2: part, gone.
1: Yeah. In my hometown, there was an Elks Club, there was Kiwanis, and then Key Club. But I remember mm-hmm. not knowing what those things were. And then I did right. Key Club because I knew that it was good for my college application. But I right. remember thinking, right. like, what am I, what am I, what is this? Like, what is this? I, still I don't have, even know what it is. I was in
2: Key Club for, like, two years in high school. I still have no idea what yeah. it did.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, so just to prove your point, I, yep, that was true Right. For because,
2: me. Because some things are hard to communicate to the next generation. You, you want them to like kind of just drink it in with the, with the culture and they don't, right? You don't explain to kids why they need a church.
1: Mm-hmm. We just tell
2: them about Jesus and mm-hmm. they go, oh yeah, Jesus. And then they walk away from the church and the church is declined, right? Or and you, you don't, you know, it, yeah, it's like all the way across the board. There's so many things. Mm-hmm. So many things. And yeah, so with, and then in the absence of those voluntary associations, then what? Right? Well, you only got two options. You've got chaos and everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. Or you have to more centralize all of these activities, like big pharmaceutical companies and big healthcare companies and big governmental associations and big... And that what happens when people do that is people stop being personally involved. They give their allegiance to the guild. And then they do nothing. Mm-hmm. And for human societies to flourish, what has to happen is a, a significant percentage of the population has to be engaged in activities which build up the human society. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, like the Boy Scouts is a good example of that. I mean, it's, it just feels like that organization is just a shell of what it was when I was a kid. Like when I was a kid, it was forming a lot of young men's manhoods. And that's all but lost now.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. The church can be this kind of thing as well because of the variety of people that are hopefully in the church and Mm -hmm. um, the variety of gifts and skills and backgrounds um, and the concept of discipleship of like raising up the next generation. I don't think the church always, I think the church has forgotten in many ways what it is um, for, but I think there's that potential there in the church for, and I think, the American church has gotten away from that in some sense, because we've professionalized a lot of things. And Mm -hmm. so the importance of voluntary service in the church um, gets at what you're talking about too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. To to that point, and it gets a couple of things, right? So one of them is we will value institutions to the extent to which we understand how they function um, in forming great human beings. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and other human dynamics. And so like, if you don't think human beings need what the church has to offer, then why is it important? Right. And so you have to understand those things. The other thing Mm -hmm. I think is important is to recognize that when you don't understand that institutions are supposed to form you, you see institutions as opportunities for a place of vanity and Mm -hmm. selfish ambition. That is a place for your own performance. Right. So you stand on that institution as a stage, but you don't conform to its, its formational actions. So like, Donald Trump's a good example of this, right? Like Donald Trump wasn't really formed by the Republican party. He wasn't made by the Republican party. He chose to stand upon the Republican party and to do what he wanted to do. Right now, in some ways, yeah, there's a relationship between him and the party and all that kind of stuff. But like, in a lot of ways, he stood on the party and performed. Right. Um, I think uh, 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 Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would be an example of this in the Democratic party. Like she like, She's she's not being formed by that party. She's standing on it and being like, "Look at me," and it's it's working. And she's changing it. She's forming the party. It's not forming mm-hmm. her. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you go into the Marines, I've, I this an example I commonly use, right? You go in the Marines and like you don't go, "Hey, the Marines are going to get me a thousand likes." No, 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 no. no. <laughs> They're going to make you do a ten thousand push-ups. You know, but like when you come out, you're you're going to be less yourself. Um, as differentiated and more forever. You're going to call yourself a Marine. Like I was with a guy in his sixties this week and he was like, I'm just an old Marine. Like that, like all the things that were true about him, right. He's a believer. He's a man. He's a father. Right. You know, he was like, I'm just an old Marine. Like that's how he saw himself in his sixties, decades after he held a firearm for the government. You know what I mean? So the church is supposed to be like the Marines. Not like the Republican Party. Right? It's not, it's not something on which you stand to perform. It's something that you see as forever part of your identity. Kind of like a family. Right? Like I'm a Gibson. Like there's a lot about me that's very just Gibson. And and that's I love it because that's what it was. But that's what formed me. That was the institution that formed me. Right. That's why people are in alumni associations, because they found their college years very formative. Right, And it used to be there were a lot of institutions that were like that. So I think one of the things to think about is, so how you, how, how do we then interact as Christians with those institutions so that they flourish, right?
1: Yeah.
2: And so there's a few things that I put together here. The, the first is that robust and wholesome institutions require godliness to flourish,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? Um, there is a certain kind of um, secular virtue relative to institutions that can be accepted and lived out. But when we're talking about the local church, that set of virtues is godliness.
1: And the, and the um, family, too. I mean, in the success right. of the divine institutions.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. It's particularly because the divine institutions are trying to form people in godliness. Mm-hmm. So, the people who lead in those institutions have to be godly, right? Um, there's a certain kind of virtue that needs to exist, then, as part of that in every institution. And partly because institutions function on the basis of shared values and trust. One of the reasons why people don't think very much when they're polled, people in America don't think very much of the press right now. Is it because they don't share the value of the press that we need to find out what's happening in the world and somebody needs to bring it to us? It's that they don't trust them, right? Too many news outlets are just putting together the narrative that they want and going out and finding things that fit their narrative, right? And so that trust breaks down when, when a pastor is like, is lazy or, is one just wants money or is like having an appropriate relationship with people in the church or whatever that breaks the trust of the whole thing. And so one of the reasons why I have very strict policies about money that like, I don't ever touch money, everything we do for spending when it goes to the congregation or the elder board, or whatever is because I'm trying to steward the trust people have about money and about therefore giving to our institution. Because what I know is, is that our institution people participate in it on the basis of trust and shared values, and part of that virtue is that in an organization or an institution, you will only do what you are allowed to do under the agreements, formal and informal, in the institution. So, there are certain things in our bylaws, for example, that say what the senior pastor is supposed to do and mm-hmm. not supposed to do. And I do the things I'm supposed to do, and I do not do the things I'm not supposed to do. And um, and some of those are written, and some of those are unwritten. And I abide by the ones that are written and unwritten. Unless I explicitly bring it up and say, hey, here we have this basically this tradition. I don't think we should do it anymore. And I get people to agree beforehand. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is not because I don't have the guts to like, do something different. It's because I'm shepherding trust and bringing mm-hmm. unity in a group of people towards a shared goal.
1: And it's not your right? platform. It's, right. it's forming right. you just as much
2: as it's forming other people. Right. I, am, I have a, a trust, a stewardship in the church as its pastor. It's not my church. Like I don't, I don't hardly ever refer to High Point as, quote, my church. It's the Lord's church. I've been given a stewardship trust. And I'm just waiting until somebody... like It's like in The Lord of the Rings where the Gondor has the steward put, who isn't king. I'm just, he's just supposed to be taking care of things until the king gets there, right? That's all I'm doing. And in some ways, just until we get another pastor too. So Because the idea is, is that when I'm gone, the institution goes on just like it did when I was there. Because it wasn't about me. I didn't perform on this institution. I served it so that it could flourish, right mm-hmm. um, I think the second thing is structuring the institution so that it's forming the people in it, not that the people in it use it to perform on. It. I think that that's important mm-hmm. as well. I think humility and accountability, I think leaders have to be humble um, and avoid the quick and corrupting effects of power. like you you have to have a theology of power and how it corrupts people, and you have to have constant vigilance about it against other people and yourself.
1: And you said leaders here, but I think that's true for anyone within the institution too, because we're Uh all creating, we're all, the institution is forming us, but we're also creating that culture.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And to quote C.S. Lewis, one of the biggest problems with this, with, with corruption and, and trying to figure out what the way things are going bad and fixing it is Lewis says that human beings are almost always one cycle behind. So the very thing you're concerned about is actually the thing to be least concerned about. And it's actually the opposite to be concerned about. Mm -hmm. So like one example presently is right now in America, if you ask somebody, what's the biggest danger in America? Um, Like sexual prudery and repressiveness or like sexual licentiousness and anarchy. Like a lot of people be like, no, like it's like we have to let people like really freely express themselves more. Right. Meanwhile, our, our culture is coming apart at the seams from people's unwillingness to make commitments and one to express themselves sexually however mm-hmm. they feel like it. And yet they're still kind of like, no, no, we got away from all that like uptightness of the 50s and we're like, we're still being liberated. And you're like, no, sweetie, you got plenty liberated like in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And the culture started to fall apart and it's time to make a commitment. And realize that you misunderstood sexuality and sexual freedom happens best inside the context of covenantal like commitment, right? And and it's like that in politics too. Like it's it's so funny to me when people are like, oh, the thing to be really concerned about right now is like like nationalism. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean that's it you should be appropriately concerned about that. We
1: should be vigilant but, against that. Yeah. Oh like yeah.
2: Yeah, but like progressivistic, like leftist, um, uh, like the state being all, we're mm-hmm. much closer to statism right now than nationalism, much closer, right? And so, like, if we're going to go off the rails, it's much more likely in the near term that's going to be going off the rails in the direction of of collectivism and statism than than nationalism and fashion, like that that definition of fascism, right? Like, it's just you just got to kind of like like remember that you're you're likely to be off. Mm-hmm. So when you look at your institution. And you're like, well, what, what, so right now in our public schools, it's like, well, we need less authority and less structure in our public schools. And the kids really need to be able to express themselves more. And like, we need to, that's probably bullcrap because most of the, um, public privately owned charter schools who use uniforms have very strict policies. Like they are having really good success with kids that are struggling in school. Whereas the sort of like, oh, you know what we need is just like more freedom at school, like more That'll be better because right now we're being, our kids are suffering because it's like too strict because of people are like strictly racist, you know, probably not. You're probably a cycle behind, right? You're still fighting the enemies of yesterday rather than looking at the excesses of today, right? Mm -hmm. Because human beings are just prone to overcorrection. So I think if you can be wise and discerning in that sense, I think it's really helpful. Mm -hmm. I generally think you have to be, you have to be careful on both sides of an issue at the same time. So politically, I'm perfectly happy to be against a growing blood-and-soil nationalism, especially if it wants to define itself racially. I don't think there's hardly any Americans who think that way, but you know, we should still be careful about that. And when people use race as a mechanism of belonging, we should fight it, whether it's white people or black people, right, or whatever. But I also think we should recognize the specter of statism and how it functions all at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. And that leads to the fourth thing, which is we need to always be reforming every institution. If you're not actively engaged in reforming the institution, then you it's declining on your watch. And maybe the institution's doing well on your watch, but the seeds and structures of its future decline are happening right now. You can and you can see this in institutional research. There's there's a, a para, parabolic um life cycle of organizations where they start out shooting up into the right. Because they like have vision and purpose and union and all right. And then at some point, you have to institutionalize it because you've got too much growth. You've got to like organize people, right? Mm -hmm. So it creates a structure of bureaucracy and hierarchy. Generally speaking, that tends to dampen the increased growth and transformation of the vision. So you begin to lose your capacity for new energetic improvisational creative vision because you're trying to structure everything and get things done effectively and efficiently, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Because then what happens is you get behind things change, right? And you don't have fresh vision and when people try to bring up fresh vision, the bureaucracy stamps it down because it's trying to do things effectively and efficiently. We don't we don't mm-hmm. have time for all this rethinking of everything, right? And so what happens is you get this down into the right then turn, right? And so all what what the literature says on this is When you see that starting to happen, that formalization of the bureaucracy, you've got to break it up again with creativity and new vision. And Mm -hmm. you need to reinvigorate that S-curve so that it goes back up into the right again with new creativity and vision. That is like right when you think you've got something, you need to start reforming it. Yeah, right. That's scary because you're like, well, when can Mm -hmm. we ever take a break and just do stuff? And the answer is in leadership, never.
1: And you're doing both. I mean, you do have to have structures and... And rhythms and things that you're, you're, people can depend on you for, but you do right. have to ha- be, have creativity
2: right. at the same time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's stuff at High Point Church that we've been doing the same for a long time. My whole time I've been at High Point. At some point, we're going to change it. We've made changes here and there, but we've also kept a lot of continuity as well, because I don't necessarily want people in church to feel like the changes are big changes. I don't want them as the like participant the like the end user like the person who comes in to worship and feel like they can't worship but at the same time like for example there's a digital revolution happening it's fundamentally changing the nature of our society right like there's i, I want to say it's like 40% of people right now are perpetually connected to the internet like every moment um the watches are doing this like because now you can have a watch on. You're just perpetually connected. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, I have one on yeah, right now. Jill just showed me one. Where, and, <laughs> and they say like in five or six years, it's going to be over 70% hmm. of people will be perpetually connected digitally. And people are like, look, you can't just preach in a building and think anybody's going to listen to you because we're going to talk over technology. There's not going to be any interacting in the traditional way it used to happen. It's only going to be through these mediums. And so if you don't change for those mediums, you're done, right? Well, we're making changes, but hopefully not faster than we need to. Like We're reformed and always reforming. We're like trying to make the changes we need to on the timetable. But that means I don't get to relax. mm -hmm. If I'm leading an organization, I have to constantly be seeking its health now in terms of stewarding trust, but also its future health and being ready and discerning Mm -hmm. what's coming and preparing it for that. Yeah, And so, I need to be reformed and always reforming what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah.
1: All right. What's the next thing?
2: I think what you have to be honest things? out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. There's more stuff. Um, so, having a healthy institution requires candor. What that means is it has to be small enough that voices matter. Right? Or it has to have mechanisms so that voices can come up. So at High Point, we have like congregational meetings where people can stand up and talk. People can type comments into the comment section in our weekly worship services. Um, All of our emails are published and we invite criticism from people. Um, People can get appointments with us and so on. So, like, we have lots of mechanisms where people can offer us their candor. Mm -hmm. And being um, willing to speak the truth and being willing to hear the truth is really critical. Right? Especially if you're in a group that had that would naturally have factions, the only yeah. way to not get to not to split apart the factions is to keep listening to people who disagree with you, and try to figure out ways in which you agree and can f- move forward together. Mm-hmm. Right, but that's that is hard. Six I is think, culture. Sorry, go ahead. can
1: I say something about this because I think this is important. What it's important what you said about it needs to be small enough so that the, your voice is actually heard, um, or that there needs to be a way for that. And I think the importance of hum- of relationship right now. Um, versus just, I mean, you can say anything you want on Facebook, but are you really being heard and are you really, is that really candor, you know? And so I think knowing that getting to a more local level of institution where your voice is heard and where candor can actually happen with kindness and productivity is important.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's really good to be a member of a local church. And to go to congregational meetings or things like that or town hall meetings and listen to what's happening and, and speak back to people about what's going on, mm-hmm. um, is that's all really important. And also, your participation in loyalty matters. I remember mm-hmm. Don Carson saying when he was in Libertyville, he was concerned with some stuff happening in the public schools that his kids were going to. And he wanted to just go in and tell them what to do because he has like, an IQ of 160 and like, he's an extremely accomplished person speaks multiple languages and blah, blah, blah. Right? But he's, what happened is his wife went to volunteer in the school every week. And she did that for like a few years. Mm-hmm. And then she went to the principal and said, hey, this thing is happening. Like, do you realize this? Is this what you want to happen? And like the school changed. Right? Through that, through that woman's Christian influence, because she was part of the community and that was small enough that they knew her and they wanted to please her. They like, they, they, she wasn't an abstract Christian demanding something. She was somebody who worked hard with them every day to accomplish something.
0: Does mm-hmm. that make sense? And so, yeah.
2: um, and so getting inside, being part of the culture, being part of the people, but that kind of thing. Okay. The, mm-hmm. the sixth thing is culture, which is um, you need to agree upon certain sets of rules and follow them and they have to be enforced and they have to be enforced on you. And the higher you are in the hierarchy, the more important it is that those rules are enforced, that there's transparency and that you submit to them. The reason that why a lot of people at church trust me is because they can submit to me because I submit to what I should, I'm supposed to submit to. If people think I'm submitting to God, his truth, and our church's rules, they know that they can submit to me. Right? Nobody who isn't willing to submit to authority can have authority according to scripture. And so um, having a culture in which that's important, I think is is a big deal. And then I think the seventh thing and last is to embrace the ordinary, which is institutions are ordinary things. They're daily day in day out in that sense they're boring but they are what make up the fabric of life and they're the reason why things are better than they otherwise would have been and they are incredibly essential to our flourishing
1: Mm -hmm. and
2: so you have to be able to recognize like i'm going to be part of this thing for 20 years like if you have three kids at a school that's like a 15 that's like a 15 to 20 year gig right um, or longer. I mean, if it's a, if it goes through grade twelve and you've got three kids, that's likely twenty years, right? Well, you're going to be interacting with the institution for twenty years, like, and it's going to be real ordinary. But like, mm-hmm. how do you want to order your life so that that institution becomes better rather than just treat it like a consumer? I send my kid. I should get certain goods and services. If I don't, I'm going to complain,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? Well, people listen to people who build up the institution. Rather than just use it. Does yeah. that make sense? Yep. Yeah. So, it's good. I mean, if you're a member of a church or a volunteer at a church, that, you know, when you say something, makes so much more difference than if you like just come and you're like, this isn't good enough for me. Well, you're like, well, I mean, I care, but not as much as if you stood shoulder to shoulder with me hmm. and embraced the ordinary of doing the work of this institution.
1: Mm-hmm. If
2: that was true, then what you would say would, would matter a lot more.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: There's a lot of younger Christians and just, prissy christians who are kind of like listen when you get it right i'll commit to doing stuff and that's just i mean that's just no way to live it's not god i mean there's so many things wrong with it but it just it doesn't lead to the flourishing of any kind of mm-hmm. institution you got to put yeah. your hand to the plow
1: and you see that in the divine institutions in the family you commit first <laughs> and yeah. then you build the thing and refine and reform the thing and then with churches you you have to commit yeah. to a community before you can help build it and
2: reform it. Right. Right. And because of that, Christians need to rehabilitate the concept of duty in their minds. And they also need to try to understand as deeply as they can the moral obligations that they have that are not libertarian in nature. I've talked about this a couple times on the podcast, but libertarian duties are duties that fairness requires. Right? So like if I... But it's it also recognizes that nobody should coerce you and you should be able to do what you want. So abortion is a good example of this where like... If you don't want the child, then you don't have any obligations to the child because you didn't choose them and you don't want them. And if you didn't choose them, you don't want them, then you're not, you don't have a duty to do anything about it, right? But of course, the minute you're pregnant, you're a mother, right? And mothers, by the moral nature of things, have duties to their children, the foremost of which is to nurture them and not kill them. Right. And so, like, that's just a different way of thinking morally. Like, y- you have to recognize no, there are some moral obligations you have, whether you choose them or not, and whether you wish to continue in them or not. Mm-hmm. Right. And then there's a third concept, which is um, things that you choose that you can't unchoose, which are covenants. Right. And marriage would be that. Like, marriage is something you can choose and you can't unchoose. Right. Mm -hmm. So making sure that we take in all three of those different kinds of moral frameworks, there is the inherent natural moral framework that God gives the universe and reveals to us. There's the covenantal moral framework of irrevocable moral choices and unions that we make. And then there's the libertarian framework based on fairness, which is um, we take on responsibilities because we choose them. And then we're responsible to them because we've chosen them. All Mm -hmm. three of those function in the life of a Christian because they're all valid. And we need to we need to recognize that and have a wider moral vision. Once you realize those other two realms of a of uh, of moral obligation, especially the third, the natural one, the one that is inherent, right? Well, then you realize that you have to commit yourself to the things that you have a duty to. Well, what are those things, right? Mm -hmm. Right. One of those, if you're a Christian, is the institution of the church, Mm -hmm. of the local church. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think this is all just to sum up, and when we're talking about how human institutions, communities, and societies do well. I think it's really important right now because we are so prone to blame just the institution, but we are the ones building it and we're the ones in it. We're the ones forming it and making it a thing. And we, um, so I think it's just important to remember the control we do have and take back some of that control that we've probably given up, um, Mm -hmm. And do some of these things that, or all of these things that you've mentioned to help the institutions we're in flourish.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We all have to accept the fact that there's going to be, that human flourishing will depend on many, many people being significant and inconsequential parts of larger ecosystems for good. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. even at High Point, even like at High Point Church, for example. In over two hundred years, right? I I'm the senior pastor. I've been a senior pastor for ten years. Who knows how long I'll be the senior pastor for? Right? On some level, I'm still an inconsequent. I'm a significant but inconsequential part, right? If you're not in the ministry, or you're not one of the pastors, or you're like you teach a class of three year olds, like you wouldn't think of yourself over the whole history of High Point Church as like a highly consequential part of it. But that's literally the point. No one is right mm-hmm. the institution can be profoundly consequential because you had a significant and inconsequential part of it
1: mm-hmm.
2: right but because but because there are thousands of those people who gave just millions of hours right for the good in ordinary ways incredible good is accomplished through these institutions by human cooperation in love over the, what's good through shared trust because of faith right and both in the home where you're more consequential that's where you're the most consequential probably through to the church through even to our government right we find ourselves being significant but inconsequential parts of a greater thing and that's what most of human life is made up of mm-hmm. and if you can't embrace that and be happy about it you have to find you have to find these goods and other things where i don't know that they exist mm-hmm. and we create we create like pseudo and artificial kinds of things right like communities of awareness that don't do anything or like i think social media is kind of like this it's like it feels like you're participating in something that is weaker and less meaningful and accomplishes less good than an institution you know what i mean and it's a it's a fake and what happens is is that it doesn't form you you don't get greatly formed by it, except for, I feel like for a lot of us, we're getting greatly deformed by
1: yeah. it. And it is a platform, which is unhelpful. We were talking about platforms yeah. so before.
2: I think most people will be happier. They will be formed better virtuously. Their faith will matter more and grow better if they commit themselves to a highly mediocre institution than if they please themselves by performing on some kind of platform. And I think that's God's desire for us. His will for us is that we embraced at least the two institutions of the family and the church, but that we also exist as exiles and ambassadors for the good of the whole city in whatever institution we find ourselves near and can be part of for the flourishing of all people. Yeah,
1: that's good. Well, thank you, Nick. Um, if you guys have questions that come up about politics um or the government or institutions, please email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. In this series, we're planning to do a QA episode because we've gotten a few questions already. And so we can cover those then. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and thank you for participating in our local church and for listening. And um, yeah, we're grateful for you guys.
2: Yep. God bless you.
0: listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.